0: Hello and welcome to a second episode of Stuffed In Your Ears, the seasonal audio accompaniment to our weekly digest, Stuffed. As you'll know, our newsletter contains all that's worth knowing in the realms of commercial creativity, culture and media, whilst the podcast takes a deeper dive into the industry topics that matter. I'm your host, Simeon Adams, here to guide you through proceedings, and we're going to kick things off by speaking to our intrepid reporter, Broadcaster and AV guru Paul McGee revisiting the story he covered so comprehensively last time to see how things are going for Netflix and their ad-supported tier. Then we're going to be hearing from Good Stuff's analytics manager Laura McLean, who will be in conversation with Sarah Jones, director and founder of Pearl Metrics, about why it pays to think like an economist in recessionary times. Finally, we'll be joined by Good Stuff's hotshot, Paige Spencer, who will be talking about media morality and the importance of ethics to industry job seekers. Paige will be joined by Danny Heath, founder of School Lever careers portal, Your Game Plan, about how purpose-led marketing is going to have to apply to us as agencies and our industry in attracting future talent. So first up, media, and Paul McGee is here with an update on the Netflix ad-funded tier. So, Paul, what's happened uh, and how's it going?
1: So, it looks like Netflix have had a really good end of the year. So, they're big new commissions, Wednesday and the Meghan and Hangary documentary. They've re really delivered big audiences and have really maintained their position in the cultural zeitgeist. Most importantly, though, they've launched their ad-funded tier, launched in early November.
0: Okay, and what was the attitude, what was the consumer attitude to the concept of an ad tier?
1: Well, we spoke to uh, consumers about the expectations of what an ad-funded Netflix might look like. Here's what they had to say.
2: If Netflix started to use advertising, yeah, I think I'd be slightly frustrated by that. I'm happy to slightly play a bit of a premium to have it ad free. Um, so I would expect to have some kind of discount if they then
3: introduced adverts.
1: If Netflix went to an advertising model and the cost was vastly reduced from, I think it's 12 99 a month to £1.99 or £2.99, I'd certainly consider it um, if it meant I had to sit through adverts. That's very much the case with the ITV hub and I think the Channel 4, forum Demand and the Channel 5 one, that wouldn't be a problem for me at all. So for consumers, Netflix are now promising a tier for everyone and a better ad experience than other platforms. Uh, they have a lower ad load than the broadcasters around about half of what they deliver, so around four to five minutes of ads per hour in these smaller 60 to 90 second ad pods, as they call them. Most of their content is available on the ad-funded tier, about 85% of it. However, the big thing that really sticks out is the subscription discount. So the discount for having ad ads isn't massive. It's around about £2 per month versus the uh, ad-free basic package. So it's about £24 saving per year for the consumer. Netflix thinks about 10% of people will take up this offer by the middle of this year. And who is it aimed at? So it is kind of difficult to see really who the ad tiers model towards um if you're a big netflix user i think you're really going to prioritize quality of uh, experience and go down the standard or premium model but if you're looking to reduce your monthly outgoings and what you're spending on is two pounds really enough to really kind of move you you down what's the reception from advertisers and clients been um so for advertisers i think the opportunity to reach that young and affluent netflix audience has been a real real boon but the product could, yeah, is still quite basic. So targeting is pretty agricultural. Um, you can look at run of site, Bourgeon was all the top 10 programming carousel. And the price for it is $65. Kind of double of what the broadcasters are really offering. And also, there would be some pretty steep investment commitments needed uh, in order to access it. Although, recently they have announced that they may change some of these elements. So two months in, tell me honestly, how's it going? It isn't looking great. Uh, with widespread reports of campaigns being under-delivered and budgets being handed back to advertisers. It's saying that money has gone back rather than staying with Netflix, you know, as make-goods, um, suggesting that brands are kind of keen to take a step back from the platform rather than extending any uh, commitment. And I think really this points to lower-than-predicted uptake for consumers. So what factors to consider, I think no one really knows about it. Marketing's been pretty nascent, and I think us in the end industry being be more interested in it than maybe consumers. And I think also the old adage of marketing people don't know how to price things might have borne some fruit here. But then again, the ad tier is really, could be really, really valuable to Netflix. So according to Thinkbox, ITV makes around about £7 per household through ad revenues. When Netflix's cost per thousand being double that of ITVs, then the logic is that a basic without household could be as valuable, if not more valuable, than a standard-describing household. The other thing to consider is that competitors are really taking it to Netflix. So uh, Disney have launched uh, their ad tier model in the States and they're rolling it out later this year in the UK. And they automatically move their consumers from the standard tier to an ad-funded tier with uh, consumers given the option to upgrade to an ad-funded tier. And in the States, it's brought them really early success. Amazon, again, continued to invest in freebie, and Neighbours was taken up by the platform uh, this year. And again, user bases continue to grow here. Clearly, I don't think Netflix is going to throw the towel in, um, but they and the market need to evolve their understanding of how it's going to work. So if they want to make their ad-funded tier a success, I think they should really kind of fix that basic price tier differentiation to attract more users. Uh, So far, that unwritten value exchange from users to Netflix isn't really compelling enough. And while the content is there to drive a happy audience, their expectations of what they uh, want in return for ads seems to be at odds with what Netflix is offering them.
0: Thank you for that, Paul. Clearly, one to keep an eye on. Next up, is it time to say stuff the recession? We have our analytics manager, Laura McLean, in conversation with Sarah Jones, director and founder of Pearl Metrics. When it comes to econometrics, Sarah has truly been there and got the t shirt. Former protege of the godfather of effectiveness, Les Binet at DDB, Sarah's a statistician that has applied her smarts to businesses like Sky. Mediacom, boo, and Data to Decisions, a regular IPA effectiveness awards judge and now founder of Perlmetrics. We're fortunate to share a number of clients with Sarah. So, does it pay to think like an economist in recessionary times? More importantly, how do you think like an economist? I'm clearly out of my depth here, so over to you, Laura and Sarah.
2: Yes, thanks, Sim. I have firmly got my Econometrics t-shirt on and uh, feeling proud today.
3: (laughs) OK, let's jump in with the first big question. Are we actually in a recession?
2: It's really interesting because actually, technically, we're not. Um, a recession occurs when you've got two quarters of GDP falling. And actually, that's only, um, that, that's not happened yet. At the moment, we've only had one quarter of GDP decline. We aren't actually going to know until the end of March whether we've seen two quarters of decline. Um, but that said, experts are predicting that at some point in this year, we will hit a recession. But the good news is it's likely to be short and shallow.
3: And a lot has happened in the past two years to get us to this point. Can you help us unpack
2: that? Well, I don't suppose it's going to be any massive surprise to people that um, everything really kicked off from COVID, where a very large proportion of the UK were stuck at home for about a year. And it meant that people had to change their behaviours and their lifestyles. Um, because people weren't going into work and going on holiday, they saved quite a substantial amount of their income. So it went from around 2% before COVID to around 8% in COVID. And so naturally, people just had more money to spend on products and services around sort of lifestyle and and health. And so naturally in the UK, that basically meant that demand was increasing. But for a multitude of reasons, which we won't go into uh, today, the supply was struggling to keep up with that extra demand.
3: So we're talking basically about a key economic principle here and when demand is high, supply is low, generally this starts to lead to prices rising. I know I've felt this, just the other day my partner mentioned his outrage at the price of baked beans, so when did we actually start seeing these
2: prices change? So the government measure inflation through a metric called CPI, the Consumer Price Index. And actually, when you look at that data, it actually started to go up, albeit quite slowly, in March, kind of April 21, broadly just as we were coming out of lockdown. And it was caused by things like higher energy costs. And those higher prices, the higher CPI, was affecting businesses and consumers. The businesses really tried to kind of hold off passing on those higher costs to consumers for as long as they could. But really by around the start of 2022, kind of wasn't possible anymore. And prices did start to go up in pretty much every sector. And when you look at the data, you can see that by around sort of December 22, inflation was a massive 40 year high. We were seeing things costing on average around 10% more than they had done a year before. And so, really, you've just got people finding it harder and harder to afford just kind of basic things. Um, surveys are showing that almost a third of the UK, around thirty percent of people, are finding it hard or very hard to pay, you know, their mortgage and their rent. And so, people are sort of consequently buying less, and that then means that businesses see their sales fall. And then businesses have got really difficult decisions to make on whether they invest or whether they save their hard-earned cash. And in short, it's my opinion, but I probably would say that as an economist, that businesses need really good data to keep on top of what's happening and to help them make really difficult decisions.
3: Yes, and that's exactly why Good Stuff have put together our very own cost of living crisis dashboard from the initial idea of uh, one of our co-founders, Andrew, down to me putting in all the numbers and building all the charts. So we're collating those key economic stats that we've talked about, as well as some consumer moods and behaviors and even media inflation data, pulling it all into one place. How has this kind of series of market events impacted how UK advertisers have been investing and what trends are you seeing for marketers?
2: Well, again, when you look at the data, it shows that media spend in the UK shrank over lockdown. Uh, effectively, you had businesses in turmoil and panic and, and they naturally wanted to pull back their investments until they knew what was happening. But it wasn't really until the middle of 21 that spend started to recover, where you've got pretty kind of limited supply of media space. And then you've suddenly got businesses piling back in to try and spend the money that they saved up in the previous year. You end up with a period and a, a point where you've got more demand than supply, and that naturally pushed media costs up. So uh, you've got businesses having to spend more in order to do exactly what they had done the previous year. And actually, if you look at the cost per TVR, it was over 50% um, increased on the costs that people were paying in, in 2019. Now, inflation has softened slightly. I mean, prices are still going up, but not as crazily as they were. But they are they are still exceptionally high.
3: And is that basically before we've had the full impact of cost of living crisis?
2: Yes. Oh, my gosh, it really is. Um, so we've now got three issues. Um, you've got businesses who've got higher internal costs because we've got inflation you've got less demand because consumers are facing inflation and pulling back on what they're buying and then you've got media inflation meaning it's cost costing more to buy the same amount of media space space and you know this is kind of impacting month on month so when we look at how much has been spent on above the line channels like tv and radio and press we can see that the kind of the increase that had happened in 2021 has started to kind of falter and by quarter three in 22 um, spending and above the line was really starting to fall and you know when I sort of listen to the conversations with my clients it is basically a question of this media inflation is unsustainable um, and we need to pull back on on spend because our budgets aren't stretching so far. But on the other side you see that most businesses are keeping their digital media investments up, which predominantly the kind of the explanation is that over a lockdown people started spending more on the internet. And so the natural place to put your media investments is into digital channels. It kind of feels like a safer investment, I think, from a from a client perspective.
3: And if you don't mind us asking how that impacted your clients' results, I'd love to hear some outputs
2: yeah so it's very you know easy to assume causality here and assume that one thing is is causing the other thing to happen but for my clients the brands that have managed to keep their spend up have actually managed to offset what could otherwise have been um really really kind of significant sales losses from from inflation uh through our econometric modeling we can see that some brands would have seen sales fall by two and a half times more than they actually did. Most people are naturally seeing declines, but the point is that the spend has managed to soften, soften that fall. But when you look at the, kind of the impact of that media and, and what it's doing pound for pound, the sad truth is that media is having to work harder than it ever did before, because you've got fewer people in the market and fewer people to, to buy your product. And so effectively your rois are down you're basically getting less money for each pound that's invested okay so looking
3: ahead what do you think we can see from marketers across 2023
2: well the ipa have just published their latest bellwether report and actually it's got loads of positives in which is really fantastic to see so whilst the overall kind of view is that spend is going to reduce in 2023 Actually, around a third of brands are saying that they expect their budgets to increase in the year. Um, So a net decrease, but actually with lots of people ramping up. And to end, I guess, on a positive note, the IPA are predicting that spend will bounce back from 2024 onwards.
3: Okay, so if we do end up hitting a recession, what are some of the practical actions that brands can take?
2: So I'm sure most people would have heard Les Burnett's wonderful talk uh, a couple of months ago where he very um, clearly said that one of the most important things that you can do as a brand is know what your price elasticity is. If you can quantify the impact of price change on consumer demand, then you're in the best possible place to understand um, how to kind of mitigate the the kind of the increasing prices. Um, we've been modelling the vegetable category uh, recently for a really amazing charity called VegPower. And what we found was that whilst the retailers had held off putting prices up for, for really quite a long time, when they did start to put the prices up, yes, sales fell in terms of unit sales, but actually revenue was up basically because vegetables are a commodity and people have to buy them. Um, and so you've basically got an inelastic product that can sustain um, prices going up. The other thing that quite often marketers will look to when, when they're um, faced with lower demand is whether they can discount. And yes, it's true that discounting will create kind of short term demand. But what we see through our modelling is that, Really deep discounting basically trains consumers to be unloyal and effectively just erodes your brand value and ultimately erodes your profit margin. So promotions are a short term solution, but not the key to weathering the long term storm that's coming.
3: And what would you say is the kind of key signal to help marketers decide on spending?
2: I'm probably going to come back to the word econometrics, but if your econometrics showed you that before COVID and before the cost of living crisis, you were seeing a strong positive return from media, so you had really good ROIs, absolutely, you should keep spending. The exact level of spend is um, is up for debate, but yes, you should keep spending. If your budget is there and you can afford to um, sort of weather the short-term cash flow debate, even if you are only seeing long term ROIs, then I think it's definitely an idea to to keep spending to mitigate the downturn. The other argument that sort of keeps coming up, and I think it's absolutely valid, is understanding what you think your competitors are going to do. So if there's a risk that some of your competitors are going to stop trading or if they're likely to pull back, then their media spend absolutely you have an opportunity to effectively buy share a voice with a relatively small amount of spend and so understanding all of those different dynamics is, is pretty key but there is a real health warning that comes with cutting back on spend and that is that when you cut back on spend effectively you start to see everything declining um and then as a brand, you've got to build everything back up from the ground. And that costs an awful lot more money than if you maybe spent a small amount uh, each month instead. Uh, we've got a an example from Late Rooms, for example, where we can see through the data they spent nothing on above the line media since 2017. Yes, they spent digitally, but they haven't been doing any of that brand building and their consideration has fallen 50% since 2017 and their brand awareness by 35%. So actually for them, if they were to switch media back on, it would cost them a fortune to get back to where they were before.
3: If, if we are to consider a less quantitative approach, what's your best advice for brands to take from your bank of knowledge?
2: Hmm. I would say, first of all, know your demographics, know the people who are buying your brand. Um, cost of living crisis is having a massively disproportionate impact on different groups of people. Now it's absolutely no surprise to hear that lower income families are feeling worse off in this kind of period of high inflation but the data also shows us that Londoners are feeling considerably worse off too because you've got more renters and for them it's becoming more expensive on a monthly basis. I think my second point would be make sure you get your empathy right talk to your consumers this is a time for actually going and hearing how they're feeling and making sure you understand that really clearly your communications have got to be empathic and you can't afford to assume that you know what they want to hear i have worked for several years with a fantastic company called the empathy business who go and work with brands to make sure that all of their communication both internal and and consumer facing is as empathic and impactful as possible so do that well and and you're and you're singing really and then my third point sort of links in with that which is get your creative route right it's the single biggest factor that most brands have got within their control to impact how well their media behaves and actually when you get your creative right you can you can double or even um, triple the impact that you see from your media. So to recap,
3: how do you think like an economist?
2: I mean, it's got to be data, 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 just surround yourself by data and understand what's happening so that you can make informed decisions. Talk to your consumers, do research and piece the two things together. And then if it's available to you talk to consultants talk to econometricians like me whether it's about your brand or whether it's about sector-wide insights we're always really happy to help
3: and if you really don't know where to start get in touch with the strategy hub here at good stuff and we'll hook you up with the cost of living dashboard so to finish let's let's go back to sim's crucial question as well does it pay to think like an economist?
2: (laughs) I'm not going to discuss my salary. Um, However, yes, it absolutely does. In times like this, when you've got falling demand and you've got very likely a limited pot of money, then you've got some very difficult decisions to make. And if you're going to get through the next couple of years with a nice, healthy brand, then you absolutely need to think like an economist and use the points that we've discussed.
0: Thank you Sarah and Laura. Not all of that went over my head, so progress for me indeed. Finally, we've got Paige Spencer, Good Stuff Planning Director, speaking to Danny Heath, founder of Schools Careers Portal, Your Game Plan. Now attracting diverse talent into the industry is a particularly hot topic at the moment. Uh, there's been the Advertising Association's paper on, on recruitment and attracting future talent. Uh, published recently, there's been VCCP's excellent study on attracting future talent, uh, which identified six barriers we need to overcome in this area. Uh, so much to understand and so much work to do in this area. So take it away, Paige.
4: Thanks, Sim, and thank you so much to the Stuff team for having me. Really excited to be here today. And we're also really looking forward to sharing with you all some of the research that we've done to better understand how young people view morality in the media industry and then also what some of the barriers are to them pursuing a career in this direction. I'm joined today with Danny Heath, founder of Your Game Plan, to help dissect this thought piece further. Thanks for joining us today, Danny.
5: Not not at all. Thanks for having me and Lovely to see you,
4: Paige. Lovely to see you too. And Danny, as you know, attracting new and diverse talent is something that's really important to us at Good Stuff, and actually, something that's really important. Uh, to me as well. So, I actually came into the industry via an apprenticeship. I uh, kind of like come fresh out of school and decided that university really wasn't the career path for me for a number of factors, really. But I felt that there was a lot of pressure coming from all different directions. Um, and I really can't thank the agency that took me on when I first started and kind of like gave me that opportunity to get to where I am today. And I do really hope that a lot of other employers, and hopefully throughout the course of this podcast, who listen in and see the value of kind of like taking on. Um, people that through non-traditional media entry paths and kind of like giving them an opportunity within the industry so as this is something I guess that's close both to my heart and good stuff's I've actually helped to lead the creation of the advertising and media module which is now live across your game plan nationwide Danny can you tell us a little bit more about your game plan
5: of course so uh, my journey into media wasn't too dissimilar to yours Paige I left education after GCSEs kind of couldn't wait to get out of it. You know, I wasn't a super academic person um, and I didn't really leave with any guidance about what I was gonna do with the future. So when I started interviewing um intermediate roles, I actually interviewed in about nine different publishing houses and all of them, you know, rejected me on the basis really that I didn't understand the industry well enough, that my presentation skills weren't really up to par. And even, you know, my interview and, and CV writing wasn't really the level they expected. And the resounding feeling I had after that was, how am I supposed to know these things? Mm -hmm. Because I was never taught them. And I think that was the thing that drove me into launching Your Game Plan. It was this simple idea that everyone should have equal and fair access to that kind of learning. There shouldn't be a privilege, it should be a right. Um, And then I kind of had the epiphany that it's not just the media, it's almost every industry in the UK is facing this issue, that young people are leaving school without the information they need to make a conscious decision about whether that industry is right for them. And they're also leaving without the kind of skill set and employability skills and soft skill set to be able to execute. So your game plan was launched really to fix that societal issue. So we launched a business with 38 training courses that were all accredited by the CPD, and they're all focused on soft skills and employability. So we're looking at things like presentation skills, conflict management, how to handle difficult situations, all the way through to interview writing and CV writing. Mm and you know within a six month period we'd signed up 500 schools which was kind of mind-blowing but also expected really in hindsight so since then we've kind of grown working with people like yourselves who are so thankful for your support to launch our industry-specific training. So obviously with Good Stuff, we've built our introduction to careers in media and advertising. We also work with people like Lloyds Bank to build introductions to careers in retail banking, ACCA for careers in accountancy. Obviously mm-hmm. You get where I'm going with that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're building all of those sectors. But the idea behind this is to make sure that we're educating young people about the industries, so they can stop self-disqualifying. They don't sit there and think, "Well, I can't work in media because I don't know anything about it," um, and they can really just learn for themselves and figure out if that's the right path. And since then, we've grown to working with over thirteen hundred schools, around forty thousand students using the platform, and we just feel like we're we're really on on the right path now.
4: All such useful skills that you're just not taught at school anyway. I no, think, absolutely. Yeah, I think. When looking at the media industry specifically what's like really interested and what we're going to d- delve into um kind of like next is through your game plan we actually have access to 16 to 18 year olds and we've actually sent out a survey to ask for their perspective on how they view the industry and some of the responses were really interesting really insightful and really excited to dive in into them a little bit deeper to understand how this age group really think and feel about our industry so the first question that we asked was around feelings towards advertising to this group of young adults, and would they consider the industry as a career? Danny, what, were the general, what was the general vibe?
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there was a single general vibe, which is kind of always, always, the, always the outcome when you when you survey students like this because there's so much independent thought, particularly in, in these generations that have so much access to information, but a couple of things that come out was was certainly a theme around mistrust mm-hmm. and whether that was towards the media in general which is something we'll come on to later or around advertising in general that was definitely a vibe that come back particularly there was there was comments around buying a product as it's advertised is not always what you receive so that really mm-hmm. talks to how products really align and position themselves online versus when you unwrap the product is it the quality you were expecting you know i think there's good examples that we've all lived through in that in ourselves so it's unsurprising it's come through um but one of the one of the more interesting comments was based around young people's i guess intelligence of advertising which they know it's everywhere even when Mm -hmm. something isn't a traditional buy this product type ad they've now got the intelligence to spot it so I mean you're effectively talking about you know native advertising here but they're aware that they're being sold to all Mm -hmm. the time and I think what that happens they then don't necessarily correlate the difference between journalism and advertising anymore and I think that's maybe something that is is definitely a newer age generation issue Mm -hmm. because they're sitting there going we know we're being sold to all the time so when I read something positive around a product or a platform or a film i will assume that it's advertising which is a a, i guess an issue that we need to address because it does talk to mistrust in the media
4: definitely definitely and i guess really keys to highlight how much mistrust there is amongst this age group but to be honest i guess it's not particularly new information it's kind of things that we already knew that we already know this just gives us the evidence to kind of like prove that these viewpoints are out there but is it all doom and gloom is there any positivity to this yeah. <laughs> we,
5: we've got a chance we just need to just need to do a bit better I, th- I think like the 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 feedback that was in the positive side was actually way more useful because it really mm-hmm. spoke to how young people are engaging with advertising in this in the media space and they know they're aware they will be advertised to in fact a lot of the responses were around the fact that we always feel like we're being advertised to whether it's a traditional advert or an influencer or something in a native sense Mm -hmm. that they are aware they're being advertised to and i think that just really needs to what that really, the feedback we take from that is you need to be way more conscious about how you're doing your advertising. You need to be aware that you can't mislead this audience. They Mm -hmm. are the, I mean, they're the hardest audience to bullshit. They're the hardest generation to do that to because we've raised them in this media world that they live in. If if you're Gen Z or Gen X now, you were born and raised in a social media era. You've seen Mm -hmm. how we, how that mistrust has started. And you have to be aware of that as an advertiser. And I think that You just need to be a bit more aware of, they will see when you're lying. So, you know, a really good example of this that I remember was when Shell sponsored the National uh, Wildlife Photographer of of the Year. And why, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, I think for anyone, and the reason this is such a great example is it's not just a huge conflict of interest. I think that's been happening in advertising for a long time and people have kind of accepted it. What you have here is a great example of just misguided campaign. You have the most environmentally conscious generation of all time. Mm -hmm. You have people that are savvy to basically bad advertising or or not well thought for advertising, and you've combined them together. and and The backlash was huge, and it was it was what was expected, really.
4: Yeah, I do, I do remember that the kind of like photo that went rounds, and it was the photo that they sponsored versus kind of like the destruction that they caused, and like the, the result of it was just terrible yeah
5: but i think that you know if you go back 10 15 years like that would have been fine <laughs> like mm-hmm. as a as a platform you could have done it and a lot of the reasons those campaigns were executed was brands that maybe have something to answer for would then sponsor things that are really good calls and the cause and effect of that is oh we don't dislike that brand as much as we used to but the point of this is this generation will call you out on it and they will call you out hard on it and you won't get away with it which brings just back to that consciousness and that idea of is this a really bad campaign to run or you know or is this a campaign that we are stretching and if you are, you're going to get called out by this
4: audience. 100% and like really the Gen Zs are looking for authenticity, they're looking for the truth. That's,
5: that's the word. Yeah. That's the
4: word yeah. So I feel like we now understand what some of the negative viewpoints are for the 16 to 18 year olds, kind of like this young adult audience in terms of thoughts around this industry, as well as some of the positives too, mm-hmm. and how media in general can't be separated and is viewed as a whole. Um, I guess, what are some of the other barriers or challenges that young adults face when looking at leaving school and thinking about different career opportunities and pathways?
5: Yeah, I mean, the biggest barrier is the fact that we have an education curriculum that hasn't been really adapted since the Victorian age, right? So... We can cut that in so many ways, but when you look at the facts around career education in school, I, I think the only two that really matter, and I could go on for days about them, but I think the only two that really matter is the fact that in the UK, the average spent per student per year on their careers education is less than a cup of coffee. It's like one really? p yeah, It's it wild. Yeah. And like most schools only have a careers leader for two days a week, and they might have, you know, 450 people in that 16 to 18 year old age bracket. So, what we're not going to get and what we have to accept now as an industry and again not just the media industry but every industry in the country has to accept that this will not be fixed in school unless mm-hmm. organizations really get behind it and start supporting it because if you imagine you're a careers leader now the majority of time a careers leader has a full-time job within the school as maybe a geography or PE teacher or mm-hmm. an English teacher they then commit two days of their time to uh, to be being the careers leader how many industries are there in the media industry alone, I mean, how many times pays you, could you cut up the media industry?
4: So many, like, like more, more than I can count. Right,
5: and then do that with engineering mm-hmm. and law and STEM. Right, so you you fall into this trap of your we're expecting a careers leader who's under budgeted, overworked, to be able to give every student the insight they need on every industry. Yeah, right? it's just not possible. And it's not possible. And so what happens is there's the default careers that they talk about, which, like, if you... What blew my mind the other day, actually, was I was on the BBC website, just bbc.co.uk, and it was New Year's Day, and I was just messing around at home. And it, it, I, I stumbled across on the front page one of those traditional career tests that you would have took at school, right? Mm-hmm. And mine comes as a marine biologist. And like, <laughs> Paige, you know, well, well. yeah, like, you know me quite well. Could have
1: been. you know me quite well.
5: That's not going to work for me. So, <laughs> but these are things that we're still pushing through the education system mm. and, and mainstream media to a point, right? So. We need to break down this media is an industry narrative and we need to start talking about social media careers, sales careers in media, copywriting careers, because otherwise we're just overwhelming them and they're not going to be able to you know really differentiate.
4: That's really interesting, and to be honest, I just can't get you being a marine biologist out of my head. That's I shouldn't laugh really because when I was at school, it was exactly the same situation. The careers advisor was really lovely, but didn't know kind of like only really understood kind of like teaching as an industry. uh, To be honest, and I felt that also there was so much pressure to go to university or pursue a specific path, which. When you know that that's something that you don't want to do, and you're 16, having to make those massive decisions for the rest that will impact the rest of your life, it's just it's just too much. So mm-hmm. like I so I was saying that I come in uh, via an apprenticeship. I did do one of those um, kind of like career quizzes and think that I got the uh, to be a doctor or something like that, which science just really isn't for me, to be honest. <laughs> much more of <laughs> I mean, a I humanities like you. I, person. I wouldn't want you
5: performing any surgery on me. <laughs>
4: <You might know. laughs> um, but To find my own apprenticeship that was something that i looked up for myself i found um, an agency and went for a series of different interviews um kind of like media as we were saying is such a broad topic Mm -hmm. part of that one of them i was kind of like handing out flyers in a tube station (laughs) and i left the interview halfway through because i was like this is just not for me this is not what i thought media would be um, and then went to had a kind of like a series of interviews had a couple of seconds um, and then found one at a small indie agency and they were great I had mm. did uh, went to college one day a week for a year or so um, and then once I finished my apprenticeship they went to take me on mm. so but they were, I just got really lucky
5: yeah you did I mean I think it's it's everyone gets that point of luck it's about whether mm-hmm. you take it or not right and I've always felt luck plays an important role and I think that's what we should be doing eradicating the luck aspect of it it should be you know it shouldn't you shouldn't need luck to have a successful career and it was really interesting hearing your point about the pressure around to university and that definitely still exists but you know if you look at what Rishi has decided to do with the current curriculum and, and the pressures of, of maths now to 18 and look I'm relatively agnostic about this like academics are important for so many professional people we need and are lacking doctors scientists you know we're Mm -hmm. not producing them at the rate we need to so it's not as black and white for me as this is terrible what is bad about it is the effect it has on young people who are forced into academic pathways who are not strong academically this isn't just about them getting bad grades it's about the terrible impact it has on their confidence they -hmm. then start uh, self-disqualifying from roles that they're more than capable because they are failing exams when they are perfectly capable of excelling in things like creative roles so the issue we're going to have for young people now is that pressure is getting stronger and actually in what should be a very pro-choice point of view around education for young people we're actually retracting away from that and if anything we're forcing people down these same old traditional Mm -hmm. routes and that's a worry and that's something that we need to address as an industry.
4: I guess what can we do as a collective to take action and really help move this on further?
5: Yeah in my opinion and an opinion that I know is backed up by a lot of careers leaders and a lot of teachers the thing that we need to focus on as you know employers in all industries but you know even more so particularly in these creative industries like media is we need to support a work experience. There is a shocking number of students every year that still don't have work experience unsurprisingly and unfortunately those numbers increase when we talk about students from lesser less privileged backgrounds Mm -hmm. and you know we're still looking at 25 to 35% of of kids not doing work experience like we still live in a who-you-know world and media PR these kind of industries that is heightened in Mm -hmm. so what we're faced with is a very small amount of young people getting that experience building contacts understanding the work that's happening and You know that's a really easy thing to fix like if you're a media agency or you're a publishing house all you need to do is contact your school and say look we will take five of your students on for work experience every year we might take 10 like you know even if it's one it's a really thing to do really simple thing to do it's just reach out and then they will put you on record they will then contact you you know they are crying out for support in this space and practical learning I think in careers is the absolute best way to do it and by sending that one email and supporting those five or six kids during work experience, that's how we do this. That's how we move it forward. It's one of the hardest things for for the schools to sort out themselves. Mm. Every school in the country, their careers leader's email address is on their website. So for the schools in your town or your community, like just Google them, find their careers leader's website, email them, and offer work experience in your organisation. That is all you have to do, and then they will contact you, and they're ready.
4: One hundred percent. That makes sense, and I guess beyond the step, kind of like after that and the step beyond that is making sure that you give those students the best possible experience when they are having the work, they're doing the work experience too, showing them, regardless of whatever industry it is, like what that, what it is a day in their life is like, how this career could actually fit for them. And I guess linking back to the values that we saw shine through from earlier around kind of like truth and authenticity, making sure that this experience of work experience is right for them mm. and it helps them consider media as a career moving forward.
5: Yeah, I mean, don't do half a job. Like I think that's, that's a very good point. Like If you're going to do it, commit, right? Make mm-hmm. sure you do it properly. Make sure you give them the exposure they need. Make sure they feel valued, you know, and, and make sure you can show them if it's the right career for them. And, and again, we've talked about this a lot, but I think it's important, particularly for young people, you know, don't bring them in and like get them to do everything in the company like the common misconception of work experience is We're just bring, boring admin yeah tasks, like yeah. don't do that like if you're if you're a, a media agency like i've put them in the programmatic team for a week or put them in the social team like
1: mm-hmm.
5: make a decision and, and talk to them maybe about where they want to be but give them a real experience because bounce them around every day for two hours from the to the apartment. Like they don't want to work in your finance department yeah. like you're a media agency they want to they want to learn about ads like so make sure you plan it properly mm. you reach out to people who have done it before like reach out to us at your game plan we help you do it you know it's a really simple process but yeah absolutely do it properly
4: they might want to work in finance <laughs> they, <might. laughs> they don't <laughs> no absolutely and i think that i guess that that finishes our, our chat really nicely because we know that media can be questionable. There's a lack of morality that's definitely present, and actually our survey evidence only backs this up further. We know that in order to engage with the future generation and Gen Z, we really need to align to their values. We need to be more proactive when talking to schools and helping them because they can't do this on their own. It's too much of a big task. Mm -hmm. It's too much of a big task for us alone. We know that we can't change the world single-handedly, but actually partnering with your game plan, having the advertising and media module out there, hopefully helps provide that additional layer of education and also helps to provide a thought starter for our industry as a whole. This chat hopefully has been useful just to understand the challenges challenges that we do face and the barriers that we are currently existing in terms of young people entering our industry.
0: I don't know about you, but I thought that was brilliant. Great to hear more about the inner workings of your game plan, an initiative and cause, as I said earlier, very close to our hearts, and why we made the decision to sponsor their media and advertising module. Watch this space for more to come on that. So that brings us to the end of our second Stuffed In Your Ears podcast. I hope you found it interesting and useful. And as ever, I'd implore you to give us feedback either way. So feel free to drop me an email, simeon at goodstuff.co.uk. Also, if you're keen to join us on a future episode, do get in touch. Until next time, it's a big thank you to all our contributors and to you for listening. Be good. This podcast was produced by our brilliant friends at Trisonic. Trisonic are audio specialists with oodles of expertise in audio creative and production and much more besides.